All right. Hello. Welcome to another episode of A Grand Reflection. If you didn't listen to part one of Death and Acceptance, we're on part two right now. So I highly suggest going back and finding that one just so that we're on the same page. And on that note, it has been a while longer than I expected. So I am sorry for that, everybody who's been waiting. Um, maybe we should just recognize that whenever I say a time frame, it's actually code for a longer time frame. Uh, if I say a couple days, I mean a couple weeks. If I say a couple weeks, I mean a month. And hopefully I never say a month because it may not be years before we hear it. But uh, we're here now, so that's good. And I would like to start this episode off by um, just kind of backtracking and looking back at some of the themes that we went through in the last episode really try to pull those out so that uh, hopefully we can focus on them, return to them. Uh, and it's not to say that it's comprehensive. I, I don't think that that's uh, necessary to, to make a full list, but maybe just get some ideas and pull them to the surface uh, just to kind of get the, the, the brain systems processing through them as we talk about other stuff. But uh, one of those I think that is really important is that idea of fire and that idea of cleansing, that idea of... Uh, judgment and hell and uh and all that in the way that it's intermixed with the notions of the devil as like the the horns and the cloven foot and on the flip side the other notions there where those come from which are things that are actually in cycle in relationship where something that gets overgrown needs to burn so that the soil can uh be fruitful and new things can come forth that there are these nature gods that you sort of um that are maybe a little ambivalent and go through cycles of creation and destruction but you enter into the rhythms of their cycles enter into the seasons and uh you can uh you can have a bounty you can have abundance uh, but it involves less about avoiding evil and sticking to good and more about uh, creating harmony so i think that that's a good thing um on the notion of dichotomies we can we can talk about male and female and uh everything in between i think we hit a lot of gender issues already so uh that makes a lot of sense especially if we're talking about witches and talking about all all those sort of things uh so that's good uh also this idea of purity um one in relation to the gender with uh the ways that uh, puritans uh, saw women and, and the ways that uh, women were uh, put down lower than men. So I, I think that that's one thing. But also just uh, gender and identity in in general, I, I think it's something that I would really like to pick up on somewhere in this episode. Uh, mushrooms was another one. Mushrooms came up a couple times in a couple different ways, but I don't think I I took time to really talk about them extensively and i think that would be a really fun thing to do so uh yeah i think altogether that's probably a pretty good start so um another piece of this is i am trying i was trying to figure all this out in my head and trying to figure out what comes next and and where this episode is going to go and i came across another source which is this great book called caliban and the witch and it relates um, the witch trials in Europe to the onset of capitalism. And I know that sounds like kind of a non sequitur at first, but the more you get into it, the more you realize they're deeply related. And and so I would really like to spend some time uh, sort of fleshing that out and uh, talking about capitalism. I know I've talked about it before, so I, I don't want to be a, beat a dead horse, but the thing is, is so much of our lives are revolved around notions that come specifically from capitalism and so so i really want to get into that and see the the interrelation between uh the new world and expansionism and uh these ideas that uh interrelate to puritanism uh patriarchal norms so so sex will get in there too uh wow both sex as in gender and sex as in promiscuity uh both of those uh anyway it ought to be a pretty interesting episode, and I guess I guess I'll just get started with kind of letting you guys in on what I learned from this book in the last week or two. Um, so, yeah. 
So this book, Caliban and the Witch, essentially what it talks about is looking at the um, Middle Ages coming out of the Black Death and seeing this emergence both of capital as the main uh, system flowing in the world and also looking at the emergence of uh, witch hunts and witch trials. And at first those things seem absolutely unrelated, but when you really start to look at it, it, it gets really interesting. So the whole idea is the Black Death happens and a ton of people die. And up until that point, the system for uh, creating uh, food, uh, creating abundance, was uh, serfdoms. And with serfdoms, what you do is you have somebody who is working the land, but they don't own the land. And you have the wealthy landowners who are kind of, uh, you know, lords and, and, and things like that, nobility. And the people who work the land, in exchange for working the land, get a small chunk of that land for themselves. So it's not that great of existence in a lot of ways, because you don't really have much way to get out of the system. You're sort of indentured. You don't get any sort of monetary thing that you can use for yourself. But on the other hand, you have this tremendous freedom because as long as the land is worked, you can do what you want with your time. And more than that, you can do what you want with your land. So even though it's not a lot, it is consistent and it's autonomous. And you are not, weirdly, even though in some ways you are under somebody, you're also... Um, basically allowed to live how you want uh, within those constraints. So uh, it's an interesting system, and there ends up being a lot of uh, community involved around this stuff. Uh, the plots of land end up being interesting meeting places uh, because everybody's working the land, and uh, so you have this sense of community as well. Uh, there's a surprising amount of power given to women as well. And don't get me wrong, it's not like this is some sort of uh, utopian paradise. There's a lot of things wrong with it. Um, but there is a, a certain degree of veneration for women, and especially for older women, because the older, wiser women uh, would have a specific connection to lands and cycles and things like that um, and be able to provide folk cures for, for different ailments or even get into the spiritual realm and provide freedom from some sort of uh, haunting or uh, nuisance of the spirit that is causing problems. Uh, these things were viewed in magical terms, and that was just kind of no big deal. That's that's just the, the framework that everybody saw things through. And so women had tremendous power here because um, they were the ones that were uh, acting as the doctors, acting as spiritual guides, uh, the ones that could tap into the mysteries. Um, in fact, this is a tradition that has gone way, way, way back. If we go back to the Eleusian Mysteries that I mentioned in the first half, uh, those were led by women. Uh, those were... Um, there, there was something of, of this notion of, of women being in charge of life uh, because, you know, naturally the womb is there, right? So, so there's this uh, veneration of that power and recognition that uh, a male body might not be as in tune to all that. Um, as well as that, there was kind of this other side, which is to say, if everybody's under the serfdom and under these obligations, weirdly, it's very egalitarian because everybody's got to work the field. And if we all work the field, um, then everything will be okay. So that means men and women both, uh, very even values as far as labor is concerned. Now, back to the Black Death, though, two thirds, well, that's not true. <laughs> What's the amount? One third. There we go. One third of the entire population dies. And it's horrible because all of a sudden there's a labor shortage. Um, this labor shortage causes the uh, serfdoms to sort of break down because you don't have enough people to work the fields. But because you're this wealthy noble, uh, you can offer a different incentive, which is uh, coin. You can say, hey, I know you don't live on this land, but maybe you can come into this land if I pay you enough, and the land will still get worked, and, and things will work out, and I can still gain more wealth 
and, and have more of that stuff going. So that's kind of the idea. And at first, that's really great for the laborers because now there's a new sense of freedom. There's this, this new understanding that um, I have mobility and if I work hard, I can actually move up the ladder. If I apply myself, I can make things better for my family and even generations after me. But what also happens with that is because there's such a value placed on bodies as labor, women gain a new role, which is as reproducers. Because if you have more bodies, uh, then you can produce more labor. If your family is bigger, you can gain more wealth. And within those terms too, it, there's another thing that gets devalued, which is that sort of mystical, cycles-driven, uh, sort of pseudo-spiritual folk remedies. Those go on the wayside because everything is turning towards capital. And things that used to just be trades or favors uh, become something that you pay for with coin. And the problem with those kind of things is you can't put a number on the mystical and the magical. It just it doesn't really fit into those frameworks. You know, uh, you can you can do that in some small ways. You know, you can say like, oh, it's so and so much to, you know, heal a broken toe or whatever. But because of the nature of it not being a numbers game, uh, not being an exact measurements game, because of it being an intuitive approach, there's not really a good way to incorporate it into the capitalist structures, and so. The capital structure as a whole, really the only response, which is very similar to the stuff I mentioned in the first episode with um, Native American populations, is either to assimilate it or destroy it. So um, again, because you can't really assimilate it, 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 it just doesn't fit within those structures. Uh, the only option is to destroy it. So magic becomes demonized during this age uh, and science becomes uh, lifted up. Because science, you can put a number on. Uh, there's direct exact measurements that happen the same every time. And it gets consistent results. Because that's the whole idea with capital, is, is things have to be um, stereotyped to, to a certain degree. Because you have to be able to have a consistent way of paying for something. And if something's different every time, there, there's no way to uh, keep the flow of money going. Now, I guess I, I do need to backtrack here for a second because capital, I, I've mentioned it before in some other episodes, but just briefly, the way that money works originally is as an exchange. So when you take something that uh, you really find valuable and you have a surplus, you, in nature, you can't really save it. A lot of things aren't really savable. You can for a short period, but over time they're going to degrade. They're going to wear out or they're going to rot. And you need to have a way to um, get something out of that still. So what happens is uh, you go to your neighbor and you say, hey, I have extra grain. I know I couldn't help but notice that your field didn't really work out this way. So uh, here, have some of my extra grain because it's going to go bad anyway. Now, your neighbor, in response, might uh, go with gratitude and say, hey, I don't have anything that I can give you right now that seems to be of a similar value, but I do have this really pretty thing. Um, and and it, it doesn't have any utilitarian value. It's just a thing. But I want to give it to you as like a token of my gratitude. Like, thank you. And you end up getting exchanges this way because then what will happen is another season, maybe the person that gave the coin, they've got a surplus and they go to that other neighbor and they say, hey, I have the surplus before. I remember when you helped me, so here's this. And um, the other person will say, wow, thank you. Here's that coin back that you gave me. I, I, want, to, I want it to be back to you. So th that's kind of how it goes. But then what sort of happens is maybe the person with the coin and without the actual um, thing that's needed, they might get uh, in really dire straits and their neighbor might not even really know about it. So what they would do is go, go, to, go to their neighbor and say, hey, I hate to ask of this, but here's this coin. Remember how thankful you were last time you gave me this coin? I want to give it back to you. 
as a token of my sincere gratitude if you help me right now. I need help. Uh, and so because of that, uh, capital starts out as this relational thing. It's very closely connected to um, forming alliances and um, establishing trade and, and not about accumulation at all. It's, it's really about the, the flow of money, right? We, we even still call money currency today because of that. It's, it's a current. It's a flow. And so um, you have money doing that. And, and, and just as an, another side, with the Native American population, that's sometimes we typecast and go like, oh, yeah, they were, uh, you know, we hoodwinked them because they didn't understand the value of the land or didn't understand you know, like what we were getting at and didn't have a notion of land ownership. And so we gave them these beads and they were like, oh, cool. And then we tricked them. Uh, but it's not exactly like that. I, it's it's a little different. The beads were uh, received as an initiation of uh, a friendship and a symbiosis and a connection. And so Really, there, there was a trickery there, but, but not in the way that we usually frame it. It's not that they didn't understand the value of the land or didn't understand that they were being tricked. It's that they were working with a different conception of how currency works. They were expecting that this would be an alliance of sorts, and we go back on that alliance. So that's the traditional view of money, and, and money slowly turns from that to get more abstract, uh, especially through the Middle Ages here, because there is such a um, distance between the things needed and the person who needs them. And so uh, things get more complicated. You have supply chains. So the person that's directly uh, producing the product isn't necessarily the person that's selling it. Um, you have big movements to the city because now for the first time, since people aren't tied to the land, they can move about. Um, and city uh, city structures happen in a bigger sense. Um, I mean, they were already there because of, uh, you know, I mean, that's part of the reason the Black Death happened. But they get more, um, more deeply integrated. It becomes more the norm uh, to have these cityscapes. And so between all that, money shifts to this shorthand rather than for connection, a shorthand for power, for influence. Uh, and again, that's still not too far from its original thing, because if you have um, a traditional a communal society, somebody might have collected a lot of shells or something, right? And, and so they have a lot of wealth. But that, that wealth is a shorthand for the ways that they're able to foster connections, the ways that they're able to um, get things to happen. And the ways that they are able to make the community function as a whole, to get everybody to work together, it's it's really more about reputation than it is about accumulation. And so going back to the, the uh, Middle Ages here, coming out of the Black Death, you have this sort of uh, shift. First, that never really goes away. Uh, money does end up being a shorthand for uh, prestige, but it's disconnected from the uh, connection to community that you're creating because communities are a lot more diverse now. You're, you're not sticking with the same person uh, or, or the same set of people over and over again. There's a lot more movement um, and there's a lot more disconnect. So it becomes more abstract. And really, when you look at it, all that abstraction is, is a stereotype, a shorthand to reality. It's not how things actually exist. It's um, a quick reference so that you can manipulate and control. The moment you abstract something, you are out of connection with it. You are um, using that thing as an instrument or a tool for your own ends rather than as um, something you're in relationship with. So this is what happens with the capital, is it becomes an abstraction. And in its wake, everything that contributes to it becomes an abstraction. And all that an abstraction is, is a stereotype 
that is used as a shorthand in order to manipulate or use for your own ends. It's devoid of relationship. The moment you make something abstract and the moment you stereotype something, you're no longer looking at the thing itself for what it is, but you're putting it into a category that is a certain degree of useful or not useful. And so this happens in a few different directions. Uh, the first is that men, by and large, get stereotyped as the strong ones, the ones that can work the most. And a big reason for this has nothing to do even with physicality. It just has to do with the fact that they were available more often because they are not, um, they don't have these periods of rest, uh, which isn't really rest, but periods of not work while they are uh, pregnant and uh, like women are. So men become the labor force. And then meanwhile, women get typecast in the other direction because they are capable of reproducing within their own bodies. They become the means of obtaining more labor. And all sorts of stereotypes stem off of that. Everything from like men are the strong ones to uh, women raise children to uh, women are subservient to men, uh, which increases during this time period because women become more dependent on men because if men are the ones creating the capital, which is the way of making a living and being okay, right? Because you're no longer tied to the land. So you, you no longer have an intrinsic uh, way of abundance within your life. It is dependent on someone else now. So um, for women, they become uh, sort of, subservient to men and obviously this doesn't help that uh religion gets in the mix here and these notions of uh adam being the first of creation and eve being made for him uh, but you can make a pretty good argument that a lot of this stuff uh, emerges uh because of these capital structures uh, that, that scripture kind of gets reinterpreted in light of the stereotypes. Because the fact of the matter is, is there were uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before this where those kind of views of the roles of men and women were not really in place. And again, don't get me wrong, there were definitely difference between men and women throughout most of history. And, and I'm not saying that uh, things were great for women before this time. It's just that it looked a little different is all. And so specifically looking at women, what are these two things, these, these two kind of sides of the coin that hit is one, you're valued very highly if you are able to um, make babies and you are devalued if you are picking up that role of, of sort of this wise elder, uh, because for two reasons. One, there's the uh, casting out of the magical thinking that can't be assimilated into capitalism because it can't be stereotyped, it can't be used. And on the other hand, you have this devaluing of an elderly workforce as a whole because um, as your body starts to fail, you can't produce as much. And, and so there's this veneration of youth as well and this devaluing of the elders. And then finally in the mix too, if you're a woman and you are past childbearing age, then you're devalued as well because of this new value of what society says your role is, you can no longer fulfill. And so we look at all three of these things together we recognize that that is the uh, stereotype of the witch, this older, ugly woman who steals babies in the night and drinks their blood and who taps into these magical powers in the forest and nature and communes with these devil spirits, uh, right? Because the spirits that were once just nature spirits become devil spirits. Um, probably a lot for the same reason as well, too. You get an emergence of this within capitalism as well because um, capital doesn't like the cycles and seasons. It doesn't like the uh, symbiosis with nature and the idea of balances and polarities because the other thing about capital is it's always looking for new markets. 
and it's always looking for growth and expansion. I mean, we still do that today. We don't call a society a um, a sustainable society, right? Or an economy. We don't say it's a sustainable economy right now. Uh, we say it's stagnant. We say we say it as if it's a bad thing that's been infected. Um, as if there's like this purity to this idea of growth that um, if something is good, it will expand, it will multiply, which of course gets ideas from the Bible, right? Um, fruit, be fruitful and multiply. This idea of uh, God creating a heaven on earth and transforming everything to his purposes. Um, capital does sort of the same thing there where it's constantly looking for new markets to expand because the sustainability isn't there so it has to consume, um, just like, uh, honestly, there's no real other way to put it. There is something in nature that we know does that, that we look at that does that, which is cancer. Um, you know, it, it, if there is something that doesn't die off and reach homeostasis, like die off as it grows, like most things in the body, uh, it, eventually it consumes the whole body because it has to find new places, new, new niches and new, new spots to expand to. And so if you look at that way, capitalism is very much not interested in those nature spirits and cycles and seasons. One, because they're magical and two, because they preach a sort of sustainability, a relationship with the land. And so under this new system, what has to be done for these women specifically is they need to be demonized because uh, they're not reproducing a labor force. They are working within structures of mysticism and intuition that can't be quantified. And they are allowing themselves to be deeply connected to nature, which capitalism wants to consume. Okay, so now that we've got all of that kind of under the belt and figured out, I want to take a quick digression into drugs and drug use. <laughs> now, I know that seems like a huge way off left field sort of thing, but hopefully not too much because we already talked about it in the first episode, talking about ergot poisoning and talking about the Illusion Mysteries and talking about witches' brews. Um, all of these sort of feminine... Uh, related sort of powers and magics actually uh, having a lot of roots within um, these indigenous medicines that most of our modern notions of uh, revolve around illicit drugs. And in order to do that, I think I want to go to South America for just a quick minute. There was somebody in the 50s called Maria Sabina. And Marina Sabina was a indigenous um, uh, a woman, elderly woman from Oaxaca, Mexico. And she was trained in these ceremonies with these psychedelic mushrooms. And um, she did what a lot of people within the tradition would frown upon, which is she let an outsider in on the ceremony. And so there's this guy who goes down there and tries out the ceremony, has this crazy experience um, where doors are opened up of perception and he has this radical, crazy uh, new understanding of the world. And he goes back to America and he writes about it. And you can still find this article. Uh, it's pretty fascinating. Um, he talks about uh, what he coined was magic mushrooms and uh, talking about possible chemical origins of a lot of these mystical uh, indigenous beliefs and it kind of just stops there except around the same time uh scientists in lab it, in labs accidentally well sort of accidentally they're experimenting but they come across the substance of lysergic acid which they synthesized from the ergot mushroom and this guy, I can't imagine what this must have been like, but he tries the substance because he's curious about it and experiences a psychedelic trip. And he doesn't know, like, there's no framework or consciousness. Nobody knows what a psychedelic trip is. 
it he just experiences this crazy changes in perception and goes off to study that more and so by the 60s between these two different strains of of uh, uh discovery you you have things getting into um the public consciousness of of lsd and uh, magic mushrooms and as you're going through these changes um, coming out of uh, the De- Great Depression and then going into the 50s, uh, new wars are starting to emerge again. Uh, we're recognizing some of the pitfalls of the ways that we have um, structured society, these ideas of conquest, these ideas of dominance, uh, these capitalist structures. And um, you have a bunch of young people in, uh, in California starting to experiment with these substances and seeing new ways of living and new ways of being and taking sort of a stand against these societal structures. So you have this new wave of idealists that are looking in terms of um, reestablishing connection, getting rid of these structures that have never been helpful for us and taking an honest look at new ways forward. And what do we do with that? Immediately we typecast them as hippies. We say that they're the deadbeats, that they're the ones that decided to be lazy, you know, cut your hair, get a job, all that sort of stuff. And a big proponent of all this was the U.S. government. Because the problem is, again, um, within the capital structures, you can't control a population, or, or, or rather, maybe that's taking a jump. You can't control a uh, production base without controlling the population when it's on a bigger scale without typecasting people. And if you have a bunch of people who are... Um, looking to be individuals and not fit the molds, then um, you can't create an even labor force out of that. But e- even more, and this is how government gets involved, is you can't create a, a consistent voter base out of that. If if you can't typecast your voter base, if you can't get everybody to be in line with the same things, then how could you hope to uh, typecast yourself and stand for something in a stereotypical way Um or at least enough of a stereotype that people will vote for you consistently and you can stay in office. Um, obviously, complicating the issue is the fact that money is tied into politics at this point. So we're um, getting this whole other thing in the mix where capital is directly involved with public policy. And the end result of all this is, one, uh, a demonization, and obviously not at the same extent as witch trials and witch hunts um well actually if we're thinking about it not as much with the uh the hippie movement because that's um that's more able to be assimilated right if you can get somebody to cut their hair and get a job then they can be back into the norm but uh, around the same time you have a rising of the civil rights movement and you have something like martin luther king jr which uh, there is a push for assimilation. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, I think that there's a lot of good things there that that Martin Luther King Jr. had. But you have this other side of the movement, which is Malcolm X, which we usually demonize more with like the Black Panthers and all that of like, oh, well, they had these good ideas of equality, but they were a little too extreme with it and uh, all this sort of stuff. But it, it's, again, this this subtle way that we take the things that we can um, assimilate the things that we can purify and we can turn them into the structure or uh, the things that we can't, we demonize and we uh, eliminate, which we absolutely did. We, uh, our, the U.S. government straight assassinated Black Panther movement leaders. Um, the, I mean, this is public record stuff. You can go and check it out. Like the CIA took out hits. It's crazy. Um, but when you look at it through these longstanding um again i'm typecasting so recognize that even i am doing that as i'm telling you about them 
but uh, these these uh, this movement within history, um, at least through the capital structures, that is sort of the uh, direction that it always tends to go. Once once you have purity involved, you can't let somebody be different. Uh, you have to find a solution to that, whether that is assimilating or eliminating. Gosh, that's such a good ring to it. I like that. Assimilating or eliminating. Um, so, uh, in terms of assimilation and elimination, you can kill two birds with one stone as far as the drug use goes, the stuff that is uh, sort of dissolving these structures, uh, you make it illegal. Uh, it's as easy as that. Um, and you can look at this from two fronts. So you have these certain movements where there's new ways and envisioning new ways of being that are um, taking the outcasts of society, as in the minorities, uh, the black population. Um, you want them to stay down because uh, you don't want the structures to be disrupted by them rising in power. Um, even if that power isn't something that is inherently dangerous to anyone in the population, it's dangerous to the structure. So you look at the drugs specifically that are used by this population. Uh, and a lot of this is just going to be chance, you know, like maybe uh, distribution chains, something is easier to get into a certain city over another, and that city just happens to have a higher black population. Um, or maybe in another end, uh, certain drugs are cheaper. So certain populations that have been historically put down and been on the lower end of the economic chain, uh, they might go to those drugs more, uh, things like that. But when you really start to look at it, there's this drive for the drug war, and you get these certain substances that are classified as Schedule One, which are under no circumstances do they have any medical help. They are um, highly addictive and destructive to the body. And um, on the surface, that seems like a good thing to do, right? Because uh, you want people to be safe. And, and that's kind of how it's built. It's like, look, there's these... Uh, all these substances are, are not safe, but some of them are more not safe, like never do them. That's never okay. Um, but when you really start to look at the substances, there's a really bad mis mismatch here. So for instance, you have something like marijuana and LSD, and those are schedule one. And anybody who is at all familiar with LSD and marijuana recognizes that those are not... Um, there are addictive tendencies. There are traps that you need to watch out for. But I, I mean, just I, I mean, just look at weed. Like, what is what is it that people do on weed? Right? Like, they get lazy. They get tired. Um, they're not dangerous. In fact, there's probably less of a likelihood of danger than with alcohol. Uh, but we're okay with alcohol. That's not even on the schedule. The, the drug scheduling, uh, according to the, the federal law, it's not even considered a drug. So, um, but what does it do? It, uh, <laughs> it takes somebody out of the labor force. It makes somebody into a less productive worker. And so in that sense, it becomes dangerous to the system. And then LSD, what about that? Well, again, it dissolves the systems and structures. And if you have all these people taking this drug and um, seeing things from a new perspective, having these sort of pseudo-spiritual experiences uh, that make them question what's going on, well, you don't want that either. So that's another Schedule 1. Another Schedule 1 is uh, crack cocaine. Now, that one's really interesting because uh, chemically, it is exactly the same as regular cocaine. But one, we have this narrative around it, right? Crack. Oh, crack is horrible. There's crack in the streets and it's causing everybody to be criminals and waste their lives away and, and make bad decisions and people are getting hurt. Um, <laughs> but we never did that with cocaine. Cocaine, yeah, we go like, oh man, that's a heavy drug. But the stigma is a little different. It's, it's something that's generally accepted among the white middle class as something like you know, th this is something the, the rich executives do, and uh, maybe they shouldn't do it, and that's probably not the best, but we really don't view it as that much worse than something like uh, heavy alcohol use. And that's because uh, of just the demographics of who's using those substances. And so, 
again, you have this drug classification that has nothing to do with whether or not it's uh, dangerous, whether or not it's addictive, but simply because of where it stands in society. And meanwhile, if, if we just want to blur the lines even more, we get to the other side of that, which is the um, total legality of opioids. Uh, so that's an interesting, really interesting one, because opium itself, which is what all the opioids drive from, is absolutely illegal. Um, in fact, it's illegal enough that uh, even though it just comes from the poppy plant, um, you know, like poppies that everybody has in their yard, if you dry that plant and get caught with it, you can go to federal prison. That's crazy. So like, so you can be growing it just fine in your yard as long as you don't do anything with it. You're not changing the substance. You're just uh, the flowers there. But the moment you dry it or the moment you give any indication that you might be using it as a drug, it becomes bad. Um, and meanwhile, we have all these derived substances that doctors have been just prescribing for ages, you know, uh, all the Purdue Pharma stuff, this opioid addiction, which is an absolute epidemic in our country. Um, the numbers are insane on how many people are addicted, but, but also how many people have overdosed. And we just kind of let that happen because uh it's within a different structure it's a, a, a that specific type we've been able to synthesize on a large scale and um it can work for capitalism because you can sell it to people a lot easier in a highly regulated format and mixed with that the general use for the specific drug is a way of getting rid of a contamination. And I know it doesn't sound like that at first because it's not like an antibiotic or something like that, but there's this idea that we can somehow mask and cover up the pain that we experience, that uh, somehow um, life should not have pain or have hurts, but that somehow we can rid ourselves of them and somehow we can um, transcend that level of brokenness and when you look at it that way it's the same exact thing that we're doing on the other end with the illegal drugs because they're scheduled so high and so dangerous that you go to federal prison for them you can even get life sentences if you have a large enough amount and so the idea is that you force the hand of anybody who's using these substances because either you absolutely stop and assimilate to the current structure or uh, you continue, you get caught, and you get removed. Um, you're a contamination that must be uh, taken away from this uh, perfect body. And so it's Puritanism uh, coming back through just in a new form. And it's really interesting because when you look at it, the American population is only 4% of the world, but we have 25% of the prison population. And those numbers, if you, if you look at the entire first year of the pandemic, and I'm pretty sure it's very similar now too, it, it hasn't really changed too much. Um, we're pretty close to that same amount for number of COVID cases. Even though we're 4% of the population, we have about 25% of the total world's cases. So I'm not quite sure uh, what the link is there, but I think that there's a little bit of uh, really interesting uh, poetic serendipity to that. I just thought I'd mention it. So let's shift gears and look at the pandemic for a second. It looks like we're having a smaller version of the same thing as the Black Death, which is coming out of a, a disease that has messed with a lot of the population. And... I, I do want to take a second to kind of bring this home. When we look at the sheer numbers, it's not that high because it just wasn't as deadly of, of a pandemic, right? We, it's not like we lost two thirds of the population, but a lot of people did get sick. And a lot of people recognized, uh, because we were stuck at home for so long, recognized that, um, Maybe two jobs wasn't healthy. 
two, uh, two or three jobs at a time, working yourself to the bone. Um, maybe it's better to just have less and be a little bit more at peace. And mixed with that, a lot of people who got COVID, um, and we're just now starting to see the numbers of this and the extent of this, got this thing called long COVID, which interestingly looks very, very similar to the chronic fatigue that I experienced for years and years, which is to say very low energy, brain fog, um, constant flu-like symptoms, and just a general sense of lack of energy. So between those two things, uh, the labor population now is a lot lower. And there's other economic factors involved. Obviously, it's a complicated thing. But at the end of the day, we're in a similar situation where, and again, not as big and profound of a situation, but another one of those situations where all of a sudden there is a labor shortage. Now, I'm saying labor shortage in this case, I, I generally like to characterize this as a wage shortage um, because I think sometimes we, when we hear labor shortage, the implication is that people don't want to work, um, which is maybe a little bit true, but it's another typecasting. But in this case, I do want to drive home that it is truly a labor shortage in the sense that there are less people available to work, whether that's because they're working on their own personal health and they're taking more time for balance in their lives or because they just don't have as much energy or because in some cases they're actually uh, dead, they're passed away. So um, that's there. And I think it's no accident that at the same time that that's happening, there's this backlash right now within um, the conservative population specifically on Roe versus Wade, which is uh, women's reproductive rights, right? So going back to that whole thing within the capitalist structure, what is the value of women? Uh, women are valued as um, creating a new labor force, um, replenishing the uh, bodies needed to do the work. And again, that gets blurry because part of that is within the capital structure, but then um, synthesizing is the Christian structure, the idea to go, to be fruitful and multiply as well. So uh, both of those happening at the same time, we still see that in uh, modern American Christianity, specifically um, working with capitalism to uh, try to uh, re-grab con control of women's rights, with which indirectly are labor rights, um, because right now they cannot control the um, the labor population in general. Things are changing, um, and capitalism doesn't like change. Uh, that That's unpredictable and uncontrollable. But that's not to say that the whole thing ends up being just a left or a right issue, right? Because whereas um, there is this fear of contamination in terms of the vaccine on the right, this idea of uh, keeping the body pure and, and free from this foreign substance. Uh, at the end of the day, that's the same thing that was happening on the left with the pandemic itself, was this fear of this virus, this fear of being contaminated, this fear of infection. So it happens on both sides, and it happens in interesting ways on both sides, where this there's sort of this dichotomy that we've created, this view that um, one side is on one stance and the other side's on another stance, but really both are in a strange way in synthesis with each other um, and perpetuating this notion of contamination, this notion of purity, just in different ways. And so when you bring this all together, you start to recognize that these things that we tend to typecast and stereotype as being in the past and being something that was a more archaic way of thinking that we uh, don't really do anymore, you start to recognize that um, that we still do it, uh, that it's very much still alive. And in fact, if we're going back uh, just to the winch hunts in general, I think it's really good to take a moment to recognize modern day witch hunts. Um, on the left, these have even explicitly been called witch hunts. Um, the idea of cancel culture, this idea that there are these bad people within society and we need to weed them out and get rid of them and the rest of us can be good, that utopia can be reached if only we get rid of the bad things. 
But then on the right, you have this uh, other notion that uh, there that our structures have been contaminated, that um, there are people within the forms of government, within the world powers who are controlling things. This is where you get a lot of conspiracies like QAnon, uh, these ideas, again, there's no accident that the, these things recur, like this idea of um, the global elite secretly controlling our lives and um, uh, going after babies, going after the youth, right? Uh, I mean, that's a, I, I don't know how deep you guys have looked into the QAnon conspiracies, but that's a huge, huge part of it is like this abduction of babies and like using baby blood for like immortality and crazy things like that. Um, those things very much sound like uh, a lot of the same tropes as what people were accusing people of witchcraft of. Okay. Well, I think that that's probably a good stop stopping point for now. Um, there's a lot more that I want to say, but I think the rest of what I want to say is to get into a little bit more of my own story with this stuff to kind of, um, weave it in, into a personal narrative and kind of show you guys how much, not only this affects structures, but it affects, uh, individuals, but also too, I, I think the rest of it is I just want to, um, go through and, uh, look at the positive end of things. Like, what is a different framework that um, that we can step into that might be a little more helpful to integrate and be a little bit more helpful to um, not cast out people, to not uh, try to turn things towards purity and, and getting rid of contamination. Um, so I think that that's where we're going to go next. Uh, right now, I'm going to cut it off. And especially I'm going to cut it off because there's some really cool connections to Christmas, especially, that I really want to get into. And um, I think that that would be best served in the next episode. So I'll be back uh, pretty soon. Mo most of it's already written down and figured out. I just don't want to give you like a three hour long episode at once. So uh, we'll record that soon, and I'll, uh, I'll see you guys then.